as we continue in our journey together. The natural and organic unfoldment and development of our practice starts to offer us the possibility of deepening. And there are many dimensions of deepening we could speak about or and usefully explore in our practice and which we do explore in our practice. And one of the elements could perhaps be described as the art of unknowing. One of the dimensions of deepening is revealed through the art of unknowing, we could say. We live in a very powerfully knowledge-oriented society. We talk about the information age. (coughs) Much of the education that we receive for you know, 8, 10, 12, 15 years is to do with the gathering, the accumulating, the organizing and the manipulating of information, concepts, ideas. And it's something incredibly powerful and useful to be able to do this. And yet it also tends to create a sense or come out of a perspective or a view that suggests that the greatest significance, the greatest power, the greatest meaning in life is derived from what we know. But as someone observed, what use is knowing how to put a human being on the moon if we do not know how to get on with our neighbours? Or ourselves, we might ask. The spiritual journey runs counter to so many of our conventional, familiar society values and orientations. And in the context of spiritual deepening, profound elements of what is powerful, therefore transformative, and meaningful, therefore valuable, arise from recognizing what is unknown and what is beyond knowable. Chang Tzu, the Chinese spiritual teacher and philosopher, he once wrote, he said, I awoke from dreaming of being a butterfly and then I wondered, am I a human being who has just dreamed of being a butterfly or am I a butterfly dreaming of being a human being? And I'm touched by the dilemma of that curious open possibility being acknowledged. Are we dreaming or are we being dreamed? What do we know with this mind that so confidently asserts the way things are in so many ways? What do we really know with this mind? the natural world when we turn towards it 
although we have descriptions and language, there's something about it that's beyond all that. When we see the beauty of something that touches us, we can't really put into words how it does that and why. But we know that it does. And when we look up at the, at the night sky, the vastness is beyond our mind. If we've been on the ocean and looked to the horizon, it's beyond what we can conceive. How does this come to be that we're here at all? Do we pause for that question? Or do we just take it for granted because we have assumed along with most people around us that we are, so why bother asking? But how do we come to be here? I mean, religious and scientific explanations are well established. You know, some versions of religion popular in Western and European cultures suggest that some great being going by the name of God sort of just decided to do it and made it happen over the course of a few days. And there was it. And life existed. And we might smile if we're at all of a modern sort of philosophical bent and think, oh yeah, we know it wasn't really like that. I mean, we've got science after all, haven't we? Now, for some of us, that might be actually something we have a genuine sense of. And I'm not discounting it at all. Maybe a, a sense of something we, we have some sense of the truth of or faith and trust in. But it's also very common that we maybe have dismissed that kind of idea. It's just kind of a story. Because science has figured it out, hasn't it? It was the Big Bang. Have you ever thought about it? The Big Bang simply says, in concise terms, there was absolutely nothing, and then it exploded, and there was everything. Is that an explanation? I don't think so. It's possibly a description, but I'm not quite sure what it's describing. But we kind of think, oh, it was the Big Bang. Great, now we know what happened. But we don't have a clue, to be honest. And if we open to this, if we allow ourselves to be touched by this, it brings, it seems to me, a sense of humility. Also a quality of lightness. But also a sense of possibility. Humility, earth, ground. Lightness, space, sky. Possibility. Huh. Huh, huh. What more may be known by this human being than they know already? This is a question for us as we enter deeply into our retreat. And it's so helpful to cultivate this quality, this capacity. When we don't know for sure what's going on, we naturally and easily pay attention.
we naturally and easily start to be interested. I was once trekking, or as we call it in New Zealand, tramping in the high mountains of New Zealand in winter following a a route that involved, with a couple of friends, involved crossing a frozen lake that is, yeah, it's, it's done regularly by people who have some experience in these things, as I did and my friends did. And we were out, out sort of two or three days walk from the relative civilization of New Zealand, um, and out crossing this frozen lake. And as we were walking along and I was leading at this point in the walk, suddenly, as I took a step, I broke through the ice my body plunged into the water and I managed to put my arms out with my ice axe out here as I went in not knowing if I'd go through completely and I didn't I was just dangling and it's a it's a very deep lake but I stopped waist depth and I got myself I said to my friend stop you know obviously don't come over here the ice is not strong enough to hold my weight and I slowly managed to lever myself out without breaking any more of the ice and it was really strange because it had been solid. To begin with, I'd been putting my ice axe in every two or three steps. Well, actually every step, and then every two or three, and then every fourth or fifth. And then I'd stopped because it's solid. And then suddenly it wasn't. So I continued walking very, very carefully. I'd never heard of walking meditation, but every single step I paid attention to it because I did not know if it would bear my weight. And it was simply because I did not know that I had to pay attention. When we assume we know something, we stop paying attention to it. So much of our experience we disconnect from and do not attend to because we are relating to a concept we hold about it. And we're not actually meeting directly the experience itself, which is fresh and unpredictable, unknowable even. And it was only later when we were looking at a map we realized that there was a stream running into the lake that must have been running more fast. It must have, had, it must have been flowing more strongly than normal. And it was cutting a very fine channel of thin ice as it ran even 100 yards, 100 meters out into the lake. And I'd found that little spot where the ice was thin enough to break through. And everywhere else was fine. But every single step, uh, uh, when it took my weight, and then, and of course, ice axe every step from there on to the rest of the, to the edge and coming out. <coughs> and of course, we don't need to put ourselves into a potentially life-threatening situation to practice being mindful of walking, or to get a sense of what that kind of familiarity does to our relationship to things when we think we know what they are you know familiarity breeds contempt that phrase in English that we have it's like oh yeah contempt means I stop paying attention or connecting because I believe I know it already it's like I've already got from it what it can give to me as if the concept could do that 
So acknowledging what we don't know helps us pay attention to what's happening. It makes it a compellingly obvious thing to do. Not because it's good for my practice or good for my spiritual life, but because actually it's good for my survival. And that's actually where our attention is normally called, to what we think will serve our survival. And we kind of, again, we're led to believe, we come to imagine, we go along with the general story that suggests information is power. Information and knowledge gives us security. If we know more, we'll be more able to control and predict experience and handle it. Is that our experience? We have to ask. It might be, and if it is, I'm happy for you, really. But it's not mine. And I don't think it's most people's. We have so much more knowledge and information now than we ever have. And as human beings, collectively, I think we are much, much more insecure and afraid. 24-hour news channels and feeds. Do they bring us a sense of well-being or extend that increased amplified anxiety? And what we find ourselves is orienting into this future sense, looking for reassurance. If we look into the future for reassurance through getting more information about the future or what it might be, it has the opposite effect. Because in the end, the only certainty that comes back from it, if we sieve through it all, the only certainty we find out there is death. And death, although it's certain, does not bring us reassurance. We don't feel better for having figured out the one thing we can rely on. We just don't. Wendell Berry writes in uh, a poem entitled, actually I won't give you the title. He writes... When despair for the world comes upon me and I awake at the slightest sound in fear of what my life and what my children's lives may be, I go down to where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and where the great heron feeds. I come into the presence of still water and feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. For a while I rest in the grace of the world and am free. To come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. The anticipation of future grief, pain, suffering, difficulty. I touched on this yesterday, I think. How much that affects and impacts us and how compelled we are to pursue more information about the possibilities of what might or might not happen in the hope of avoiding what we do not wish. And what this brings into focus is our engagement with and our entanglement with 
the world of time. Time is a construct. It's an agreement. It's really helpful. It means we all turn up approximately at the same location and same time so we can have a Dharma talk, for instance, or a sitting together, or know when we should get our meals. So I've got nothing against such things. I've got no problem with that at all. But the sense of time that we impute beyond that organising agreement easily creates a sense in which the future seems more real and more important than the present. That's the only way we can explain how much our attention, time our attention spends there. Attention is currency. It shows what we value. If we're thinking more about the future, at some level we are valuing it more than the present. It's that simple. Not that we're necessarily choosing to or doing it consciously, intentionally, but nonetheless that is what is happening. And experience and our life from this orientation is just unsatisfying, unfulfilling. Because the future doesn't offer us what can only be found in the present, in the immediacy, in the actuality of where we are right now and in any moment. Time. We sometimes talk about time in terms of duration. And as soon as we have that word, we have the root of enduring. It's hard work. It's a struggle, isn't it, when things continue in time. And this process of grasping and resisting is always based in time. The idea of grasping and keeping hold of an experience is the idea that we can project and extend it forward in time. Resisting and pushing away is to prevent that from happening. Without that sense of time in that way, it wouldn't make any sense to resist or to take hold of. And so we can look at how this is constructed a little. The past, what has gone before, of course we can learn a lot from it. And we must, we need to. We learn from the past. And the future, of course, we need to make preparations for what seems most likely. Because we might not have time to prepare when we get there. But we need to know that what seems most likely and what actually happens will not necessarily coincide. And yet, if we step back and look at the sense of how we do that, we do it by reimagining a version of the past that either the same or different. We can only think about the future in terms of it's the same or different than the past. We have no other basis for having a sense of any experience that might be yet to come. And <coughs> the past as it was, actually, is very different than our memory of it. Our memory is a few fragment pieces of it pasted together. To actually remember the past fully would take as long as it took for it to happen, during which time we'd be having more experience. We could never do it. 
We can't remember our past. We only have pieces and fragments and pictures. But we tend to relate to them as something absolute or certain or this is what it was. It isn't to say that we don't have and don't need to have important recollections of things that are significant. Of course. And importantly, and we learn through and with these. But the sense that they form a basis for projecting the future world needs to be questioned, needs to be challenged, in fact. Because these fragments point to a past that is gone and cannot be found again. And the future is not as we imagine it to be. It just doesn't exist beyond our thinking of it until it comes into being, in which case it's as real as right now. But before that, it's completely not. And yet, we don't live with some... We so easily find ourselves in the sense of this call into something in front of us, leaning towards something that is not here. <coughs> and there's an element of that that's, it's this whole sense of progress, this whole thing we have about getting further or better or improving or perfecting. It's all based on time and measurement. We see that we want to get and develop meditative concentration. Or now we want to develop loving kindness. And yes, it'll be good to have some more of that. Absolutely. Or insight and understanding, yes. But the way we tend to do that is we tend to look, well, how much did I have? Have I got some more than that now? Have I got less? It's not generally okay for us to just say, oh yeah, here's some of this. We want to know, is it the same as? Is it more than I used to have? Is it the same as or more than somebody else has got. We rely on these conceivings of time and on kind of measurable things to validate ourselves as somehow okay, to value ourselves, to establish that we're okay, that we're doing okay that other people are going to think we're okay. And of course, that's understandable, that's natural. While at one level it's so important to free ourselves from the need to somehow perform, succeed, and be approved or valued by others. As uh, Lao Tzu said, if we, want, if we always want people, no, if we want people to always like us, we will become their prisoner. So there's something about the things we expect or want to be liked are always things that are measured and compared. Without comparison, it makes no sense anymore. But at the same time, we need to be really compassionate and understanding of the urge for that. As human beings, until relatively recently in, in this the vast span of human history, 
a human being by themselves would not survive. Only in a tribe, in a village, in a community was there any hope for survival and well-being. And so the risk of being rejected or excluded by one's community, one's tribe, one's family, was not just, it's not going to feel good, it's going to be death. It actually would be my, the end of my existence if I was not part of and woven into that community. So we are wired up really deeply and strongly to make sure we don't upset, irritate or disappoint everyone around us. And hopefully to actually impress and uh, get them to like us really a lot. And while this is really important at a survival level, at a deeper spiritual level, it, it creates a pressure to somehow fix, somehow hold, somehow to maintain a sense of me to be presented for approval. And it's constantly in conflict with the actual experience we have, which is that we're fluid, that things are changing, that one day I might be able to be a great meditator and the next day I'm just terrible at it, it seems, if I think in those terms. Or let alone one day, one, one sitting, one minute. It changes that quickly sometimes. And if we actually acknowledge this, if we turn towards this, we see that, in fact, our immediate experience itself is, is quite hard, if not impossible, to define. We can't wrap it and package it and say, it's this, because it's sort of this, but it's a bit sort of not this as well. Whatever you say of it, like it's lovely, but is it all lovely? Or it's terrible, is it all terrible? Is it still exactly the same terrible 10 minutes later or is it a different kind of terrible? My knee hurts. It's been hurting all day. But it's a bit like that, what was it, you know, the, the person who was selling David Bowie's axe. And he said, it's David Bowie's axe. It's original. It's the one. It's had the handle changed three times and the head twice, but it's David Bowie's axe. And it's not, of course, is it? Not a, not a part of it was handled by David Bowie. David Bowie? Daniel Boone. I was, gosh, sorry. <laughs> You're wondering what I was talking about. I don't think David Bowie was known for having an axe. Where did that come from? My gosh, Daniel Boone. David Bowie. Da so you probably know Daniel Boone was a, a, a historical and probably somewhat mythical figure in, uh, in, in American sort of early frontier culture that certainly had an impression on my consciousness, though not as clear and steady a one as I'd thought. Um, uh, David Bowie also made an impression, but somewhat differently. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, we see these things. Even a memory changes, and you think it's the real one. And you actually, I, I must have used that. Da I said, David Bowie, how many half a dozen times before I clocked that it was the wrong person? But it felt right, and had the right initials. But this way in which our experience is changing and yet we sort of try and impose onto it a sense of it's the same thing. You know? Sometimes, as I started that from talking about pain in the knee and we say pain. If we actually look at it carefully and say, I've, it still hurts. It hurt yesterday, it's hurting today. 
it's highly unlikely it was exactly in the same place with exactly the same intensity for that whole time. Mostly it moves around a little bit. Or it changes a little bit, gets a bit more, a bit less. But we come back and say, it still hurts, it's the same thing. We impute continuity. Because that kind of somehow helps us to think we can handle it. Because we know what it is. And it's actually really unsettling for us to not be able to define what's happening or who we are in terms that give us a sense of this is what it is, this is how it is, this is what I am, this is who I am. And so often as a result of the need to be able to self-define, to know who we are, because it's scary if we don't, we tend to find ourselves creating a story and a construct about kind of what's not okay. Because it's somehow preferable than not knowing who we are. We somehow construct a sense of a me that's not okay. It's almost like better the devil we know than the devil we don't know. That phrase is like, I don't mind if it's bad news as long as I know what it is. And in terms of the story of ourself, often that's how it plays out. If we don't know, if we're not sure, if we are in that situation, a very different response often shows itself. And some, actually quite a long time ago now, I realise, um, I was going to a meeting where there was going to be someone who was important, the then um, editor of Tricycle Magazine, who I had heard of but I'd never met, uh, Helen Torkov. Um, so it was quite some time ago. And it was very interesting. I noticed my experience of going into this room full of all these people of whom I probably knew a third, if that, and all these people I didn't know. And all of the ones who could possibly be Helen Torkov, this important person to me, it seemed, I had this sense of really looking respectfully and interested and trying to make sure I was on best behaviour. And it's like something very interesting. What would it be like to meet ourselves like that? without knowing who we were. When I know who I am, or I know someone who they are, I sort of tend to have a more standard range of responses to them. But when we don't know, it brings something out in us in the way of interest and respect, quite naturally. It's not something we have to do, because we're supposed to. And what might it be to relate to ourselves like that? It's like, oh, this one. Hmm. This one. What might be possible if we weren't so sure of who we are? The uh, teacher, Keopal Venanji, once observed, he said, Break your heart no longer. Each time you judge yourself, you break your heart. You stop feeding on the love 
that is the wellspring of your vitality. Now the time has come, your time, to live, to celebrate, and to see the goodness that you are. There is no evil, no wrong in you or in any other. There is only the thought of it, and the thought has no substance. You are dear, divine, and very, very pure. Let no one, no thing, no idea or ideal obstruct you. If one comes, even in the name of truth, forgive the thought for its unknowing. Do not fight it, just let go and breathe into the goodness that you are. What might it be to be open to that possibility? That what is most fundamentally true about what we are is profoundly pure and good and blessed. Not in need of fixing or sorting out or having to learn meditation to be okay. Not at all. And yet it's not easy for us because that can't be guaranteed as a certainty to us. No one, certainly not I, am going to try and prove to you that that is so. But could we live with the uncertainty? It's not easy, is it? The possibility even introduces an uncertainty that for many of us feels uneasy, uncomfortable. And rightly, naturally so. Voltaire observed once, he said, uncertainty is indeed uncomfortable. But certainty? Certainty is ridiculous. Because it does not exist, does it? And what we've learned is that what is uncertain and unfamiliar is dangerous. Those old maps of the ancient world where the, what was known, at least from a European perspective, and a pretty limited one in that, was you know, the, the maps of Europe and then out on the edges of the oceans and there be dragons. It's like it's scary. It's just other people living in other countries doing actually quite well, thank you. But it was there be dragons. It's scary because it was unknown. It's written into our cartographic history. Unpredictable, uncontrollable. It's the nature of life and yet full of possibility when we leave it intact rather than compress it into a fixed position that we can feel certain about despite the fact that it never quite holds water. But to notice what it's like for us. It's always important not to judge when we see what we do. And maybe, hopefully, some of what I'm saying is illustrating some of the things that we do as human beings and how our minds and our hearts operate. So we want to know what the sound is. Has anyone been here listening to the sound of a bird going, what kind of bird is that? Is it a rook? Is it a crow? Is it a jackdaw? I've certainly done that. Or it's a songbird. And it's, oh, what's that? I want to know what it is. 
it's as sweet and beautiful without knowing it. Or as unpleasant and grating as whatever those other birds are without knowing where it comes from. But that wish to know is strong in us. And we hold on to it because it gives us a sense of security. And I had an opportunity to learn something powerful and impactful about that when I was teaching a retreat in, um, in Australia in the Dara National Park. I was uh, at a place, uh, a monastery called Wat Buddha Dhamma. And uh, <coughs> I'd arrived there for the first time, never taught there before. Um, and it was in the forest, in the bush, which I, I didn't know this particular kind of bush in New South Wales. But I felt pretty comfortable there. It wasn't too different from some I've known in the north of New Zealand. And um, So the day, I arrived the day before the retreat was due to begin and I uh, sort of enjoyed just settling in. And the, the day of the retreat, I, um, sorry, the day before the retreat, I decided to go out for a walk. And I was just walking out on the trails and it was lovely, beautiful bush, but it was really dense and you couldn't see out anywhere. I really wanted to get a view over it. So at one point I saw a, a hill climbing up off the track. And, oh, I'll just go up on top of that and get a view. So I walked up on, the, up on the path up to the top. And at the top there were more trees, so I still couldn't see anything. And I thought, oh, oh well, I'll go back. And I went back down. And I've been going for a little while. I thought, hmm, I thought I'd have got to the path by now, but it must have been further, so I kept going. And so a while later it's like, oh gosh, I've somehow missed the path. I'm pretty experienced in that one. In the outdoors, I was sort of pretty confident. I knew what I was doing. So I was ah, I just missed it. I'm not sure how that happened. I'll go back up and I'll find it. I went back up to the top, but I didn't find it. And I thought, hmm, did I go the right way? Yeah, I did, I'm sure. I went back down. Went even further. Still didn't find it. Went back up to the top. Did this two or three times more. And then I kind of got back up to the top and I thought, hmm, it's not there. Gosh, it was getting dark. And I thought, hmm, okay, maybe I should just take a rest now and I could look for it later or find it in the morning if I have to stay out here. And I thought, I have to stay out here, oh my gosh. But the thing was, I know exactly where the path is because it's just down there, where I came from, because I'd really paid attention. And so I actually started gathering together a pile of leaves and things, thinking, hmm, it's lucky it's not going to be cold, it's Australia. But it's going to be a bit strange to sleep out the night. Can't find the path, but I know where it is, so it's right. I was really quite relaxed. And then, in a moment, like a lightning bolt through the very core of my being, it just dawned on me, boom! You don't know where the path is. And in a microsecond of compressed thought it was like you could have completely got it the wrong way around you could be completely disoriented you don't know where you are you could die out here and the people will turn up for the retreat and they'll all be sitting there wondering where is the teacher and they will not have a clue where you are lost out here and it was just terrifying and it went through me like like lightning it's like like whew, this amazing charged bolt of energy of pure terror and I was like, oh. And then I rose high. 
I don't know where the path is. But you know, I do know where it's not, and it's not down there where I've been looking. So why don't I try somewhere else? And I thought, okay, let's just assume I don't know, but it's not there, so I'm going to take 25 degrees clockwise, try that, and see what went down the hill. Sure, it was not down there, because I knew it was down there. Some part of me still said, no, it's that way. Went down the hill, 25 degrees, sort of that much round. 25 is there. Went downhill, boom, there was the path. Oh, relief. Covered in scratches and um, soot because there'd been a forest fire up there six months ago. I turned up back at the little cootie and nobody had noticed. And the retreat hadn't started and I got away with it. And the interesting thing about this is that I was trapped up there and I could not find my way out because I was sure I knew where the path was. And I did not want to face, or could not face until it was forced upon me, the fear and the terror of giving that position up and saying, I don't know where I am, and I could die out here, it's true. But once I'd given that up, I was free to explore, and then I could find what I needed to find, which was the path. Sometimes it's like that for us in practice. We're sure this is the way. And it might be, it's true. But it also may not be. And I don't mean by this anything particular. Of course, insight meditation, this is the way. Of course, I'm an insight meditation teacher, I'd tell you that, wouldn't I? This is the way. But no, it's not. It's a way. One can still get lost while on the way, on a way. We can also find our way if we understand how to use the tools and the possibilities. That willingness to allow ourselves to trust in what we don't know, the courage and the honesty that involves, to say, actually, I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know whether this is going to work. Or this is going to be useful. But I'm going to try it out and I'm going to see. And if this doesn't work, I'll try something else. No one's keeping count of how many times you go up and down the hill. Except yourself. If we realise how much we don't know, we become naturally curious naturally curious and fascinated and it leads us to pay attention not just out of the survival function of oh if I don't know then it's dangerous and I need to take care and be cautious that's a great faculty and quality and necessary caution yeah but there's also a sense of possibility that comes I was um, like I mentioned being in Calcutta on one of the previous nights and uh, while I was there I also wanted to visit a teacher who I'd heard about, but I didn't know and I'd never met. And I went to the place where this teacher was to be found, usually, and I went there. And I said, when, when's, when's, the, when's this teacher coming back? His name was Manindra. Um, I said, we don't know. So, well, okay. So I looked up and I found there was another retreat happening, so I didn't know anything about it, but I thought, give it a go. I went along there. 
and um, met the teacher who was some person who I don't really remember. But there's also this other person there who um, came and said hello when I arrived and then just sat at the side for the whole retreat. Just sat there. I was doing the retreat 10 days, practicing intensively. Um, it was hot, I remember. <laughs> at the end of the re- retreat, this bloke in a white um, robe came up to me and he, he said to me, come and visit me. And offered me a card. And my response was, why would I want to visit you? I didn't say that. I took the card, looked at it, said, Manindra. How did that happen? Who knows? But he became a really important teacher for me. When we open to not knowing, there's this sense of curiosity that has something beautiful and powerful in it that leads us to look to see what more, what more is here to be discovered. This quality the Buddha spoke of as one of the factors of awakening, as one of the fundamental qualities that lead us further in this journey. And investigation, which is really the engagement of curiosity directed towards our experience, he spoke of this as the most proximate factor that which most immediately leads to awakening. And part of why that is so is that in order to discover something new and beyond what we've already known and understood, we have to be willing to travel into the uncertain and unpredictable territory where we let go. of our certainties and our knowledge. Where we're willing to rest in a quality we might call trust or faith or confidence. In the sense of possibility that our heart speaks of. There's a story that's told of a a pilgrim who goes walking along thinking about whether they really believe in God. And in the end, the pilgrim comes to the conclusion that they're not at all sure. And while they're wondering, they stumble on the edge of the path on a cliff and fall, catching themselves halfway down on a branch of a tree. And so there they are dangling above the rocks and the river below. No way up, certain death below. And in the heart and mind of this pilgrim, the thought arises, God, if you're real, save me and I'll believe in you. If it was a Buddhist, it might have said, Buddha. They might have said, Buddha, save me and I'll believe in you. And to the surprise of the pilgrim, this loud voice roars back. All right? Sounds like a good deal. Huh, God, is that you? Wow, yes, please, save me. I'll have faith in you forever. I already feel deep faith. I was uncertain before, but I trust. Now, 
And that's what they all say when they need some help. No, no, this is for real, says the, the pilgrim. Okay. If you trust in me, I'll save you. Yes, yes, of course. That's what I, 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 I have faith, I believe in you, I trust in you, I have confidence. And God says, okay, I'll save you. Let go of the branch. Let go of the branch? Do you think I'm crazy? It's so counter to our reflex instinct to hold on. Because to let go is to relinquish control, certainty, predictability. Not that holding on gave us any of those things, but that it gave us the illusion of it. Or the hope for it. And so we are asked to bring forth a quality of courage. A quality of kindness actually to hold that place of fear in our hearts that does not easily release the grip we impose upon life. To bring a kindness to that place in ourselves when we encounter it is so important. But also to cultivate a quality of courage, of strength and nobility of heart to allow ourselves to release that urge to hold on. When I lived in America and I was working as the resident teacher at Insight Meditation Society in the 90s, uh, when I left, no, actually not when I left, it was on my birthday, they gave me a card and it said, could you tell the difference between falling and flying if there was no ground? I thought a rather lovely expression of something profound. Joseph Goldstein, one of the founding teachers there, he used to say, and probably still does, this process is like jumping out of a plane on a parachute jump and realizing you don't have a parachute. Ah! And then realizing there's no ground. What is that? Willingness to step out beyond what we know without any certainties. When there is no ground. Not to say there isn't a ground we can rest on for our practice, but there isn't that solidness that we attribute to experience. Without that solidity, and that fixity, in fact, what is revealed as possibility, potential, and so much more than we might have imagined. So I'll finish with a quote from one of my teachers. 
Ajahn Sajitai, who's an English Buddhist monk based in a monastery in uh, it's, uh, East, no, West Sussex, called uh, Chitta Viveka, the Silent Heart, or Chitta's Buddhist Monastery. He once said, there is no real learning on the intellectual level. There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to realize, sorry, to recognize that really the learning part is when we go to the edge of where we know and where we control and the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of our life says keep going past the area where you can't control it anymore and trust. For me, this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with truth, to honor the truth, and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life. Let's sit a few moments together quietly. And may we all in our practice come to trust in the vulnerability of our lives amidst uncontrollable, fluid circumstances. May we find the courage to turn towards what cannot be grasped and known, but what can be realized. for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings, for the well-being of all that lives.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.